Hello, everybody, and welcome to We Measure the World, a podcast produced by scientists for scientists. But one of the great things about working here and working with Chambers, and this is one of the things that makes him really good at his job, is if you need to test something and see if it can be broken, you give it to Chambers. Oh, I will. <laughs> I, have, I have made every mistake with our gear that our customers have. Every single one. And once they haven't yet made, probably. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I remember when we were testing out the capacitance clips that we use now to validate our Taros sensors. And I was so excited about it. And I was like, Chambers, check this out. This is awesome. And I gave it to him. First thing he does is he slides it on the sensor wrong and breaks it. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. Broke yep. the prototype before we even figured out if it worked. Yep. That's a small taste of what we have in store for you today. We Measure the World explores interesting environmental research trends, how scientists are solving research issues, and what tools are helping them better understand measurements across the entire soil-plant-atmosphere continuum. Stay current on applied environmental research, measuring methods, and more. Thanks for spending time with us. All right, let's get started. Today is part two of a two-part series, where we meet the people behind We Measure the World, a group of scientists who are passionate about measuring the environment. Their day job is to design new environmental sensors and improve existing ones for other scientists. Sensors they've developed are routinely used to gather data all along the soil-plant-atmosphere continuum. They even have a sensor sitting on Mars. Today, we'll interview Leo Rivera, Chris Chambers, and Holly Lane. Let's start with Chris Chambers. Chris is the Agriculture and Environmental Application Specialist at METER. He earned a bachelor's in forestry from the University of Illinois in 1995 and spent the next six years as a vagabond. After traveling the world and having many fantastic experiences, he returned to his studies as a graduate student and pursued research in physiological ecology and biogeochemistry. He completed a master's in forest resources before Meter put his skills and experience to work to support our customers and help them get the data they need. All right, Chris, what is it like being a vagabond? Oh my gosh. So we're going back a ways for, for that. Um, you know, I got a, a, a BS in forestry from the University of Illinois, and the first thing I wanted to do was get out of Illinois and find some forests. <laughs> That's not entirely true. There's some great forests in Illinois, but I used seasonal forestry as a vehicle to get out and see the world, right? So I would find a, a job for a season, cruising timber or laying out timber sales, uh, assist, assistant botanist, whatever, just running around in the woods. And it took me from, you know, the Sierra Nevadas, up the coast range in Oregon and Washington, uh, St. Joe forests in Idaho and all the way up to the Tongass in Alaska. So I would work in the woods all summer and then be a ski bum in Salt Lake City in the winter. I wound up in Haiti for uh, much of one winter. And really, it was just seeking experiences mostly. And it was, it was great lifestyle for, for a young person trying to figure out life. And, uh, you know, you live for the moments that were, um, just, you know, amazing, like coming over this ridge in the Sierra Nevadas and there's Mount Lassen just dominating the sky and a whole meadow full of buttercups it just blows your mind sometimes or, you know, seeing the Aurora Borealis from the lighthouse in Sitka Sound. Uh, really, it's, you know, there, there's a price to be paid for it, but it's 
really rewarding experiences. So you sought experiences. Sounds like you found some experiences outside of those uh, non-academic experiences. Was there a most interesting project that you worked on before you came to Meter? And and you tell us a little bit about that and what you learned from that. So, of course, including academic experiences, my master's degree was fantastic. But, I, you know, part of my vagabond days was a, a tour in the Peace Corps in Nepal. And that was hard. <laughs> it was so hard. But it really, uh, you know, I was involved in some uh, local just drinking water projects and agroforestry projects. And so that was challenging and really rewarding, you know, and then most of my experiences were outdoors and I had a cautionary tale at one point and I realized that I couldn't do that lifestyle forever and that I might live past 40. So that's when I decided that, you know, go back to school and just in case you need to have a job where your legs that don't use your legs all day long. Uh, so I went back and uh, studied physiological ecology and um, my master's project there was really, really a, a great project to be involved in too, like a large forest scale stable isotope tracer experiment. It was super fun. Chambers is also the only person I've known to have uh, altitude sickness. Is that right? Yeah. Oh my gosh. That was in theory, it was a great idea, but uh, crossing this path from the Kathmandu Valley into into Long Tong, it was like a three-day hike. It was, uh, where did we get at? We got above 3,900 meters, but that was crazy. It, it really is crazy. You get to the top of the pass that looks like the moon and uh, realize that if you don't get moving, you're going to die. <laughs> so. So we went went down, we descended and got low enough uh, to recover the next day. Okay, now we'll introduce Holly Lane. Holly comes to us with a background in agricultural biotechnology with a master's in plant breeding where she focused on phenomics work in maize. She has a broad range of experience with both fundamental and applied research in agriculture and worked both the public and private sectors on sustainability and science advocacy projects. She's also advocated for agricultural research funding in Washington, D.C., and currently, Holly is an application expert and inside sales consultant with Meter Environment. So, Holly, same question. What's the most interesting project that you've had the chance to work on? It could be academic or otherwise before coming to Meter. Hmm, the most interesting project, I guess, is it biased to say my own master's thesis work? Definitely not. Uh, <laughs> um, so, my project was on kind of this new concept in breeding called phenomic selection. And as far as I know, I think we're the second people to publish on this topic. So to put it in context, it's a similar idea to genomic selection, but instead of using uh, more traditional genetic information, we're actually using spectral information from near-infrared spectroscopy. Um, And that's, you know, much cheaper to collect. And so we were kind of looking to see, can this spectral information tell us about how well these maize plants performed in the previous year. And we actually had really surprisingly good results. A technology like that, which has been used historically to quantify chemical composition. So that has a longstanding history in chemistry or forage quality analysis for feed quality and livestock. And so we use it in the program to make predictions about 
protein, starch, oil content to predict these phenotypes. Um, But now we're looking at it in a way that's sort of analogous to a genome. You can think of it as a phenome. So all of the spectral information, kind of like a spectral signature, and seeing if we can mine uh, more complex information about the genetics of these plants or the performance of these plants. And one of the things I think is really exciting is that you don't need genetic information to use this technology. And so crops that aren't like corn, that haven't had all this money and resources put towards genotyping, could potentially use a technology like this, those so-called orphan crops, right? Um, So I've been talking to one of my colleagues at Washington State. He's working on quinoa, and they have all this near-infrared information, and they're kind of building a genetic database But I think something like that might be a really good candidate for this because they don't have the genetic resources available that something like corn does, but this kind of technology could really benefit them. So it's still very much proof of concept, but it was really interesting to work on a project that was so new, right? Because there's so much opportunity for this technology to advance and to benefit um, breeding programs. How did you find plant breeding, Holly? Was it just, this is what I want to do old, or, or did you, how'd you get on that path? That's a really good question. So I didn't grow up in a farming background at all. And in high school, we had a health teacher show us the documentary Food Inc. And so I decided to go to school to study organic agriculture because I was like, those guys know what they're doing. The food system is scary. I got to get out there. I got to make a difference. And so my first semester, I was in an ag and food systems class. I just remember sitting with these students who did come from farm backgrounds, right? And their experience and their knowledge was so different than mine. They were sort of like, why don't people trust us? These are our families. This is our livelihood. And that was really powerful for me. But Had I not gone to school for that, I wouldn't have had those types of interactions to build that trust back with my food system. I learned a lot that semester. I learned about GMO technology and how it was made. And I ended up going to the professor who gave us that lecture afterwards. And I kind of like shuffled up to the front. And I said, I'm an organic ag major. I was really anti-GMO before I heard your talk but you've really opened up my perspective and I'd like to learn more. And I ended up working for him for three and a half years. I made GMOs. I changed my major to ag biotech Um, and kind of just throughout my undergraduate career, a lot of these mentors who had kind of come in and out of my life were plant breeders. And I knew I was being encouraged to go to grad school. I knew I wanted to go to grad school having worked in a lab for three and a half years doing molecular research. I knew I was capable of doing research, but I was kind of looking to do something more applied. And so I thought, well, hey, I really appreciate a lot of these people in my life and their plant breeders. Maybe I better give that field a go. So I was really happy. I had a great master's experience. Okay, let's transition to Leo Rivera. Leo is Meter's hydrology product market manager and earned his undergraduate degree in agriculture systems management at Texas A&M University, where he also got his master's degree in soil science. There, he helped develop an infiltration system for measuring hydraulic conductivity used by the NRCS in Texas. Okay, so 
Leo, what's the most interesting project that you worked on before coming to Meter and what did you learn from that? I was really fascinated by Holly's story because uh, I think people often lack an understanding of the food system and where their food comes from and really what it entails and they're scared of it and they shouldn't be. And I think it's a lot of it is just education and bad information, really. And so I, you know, I hope in the future we can keep diving into that, even though that's not the purpose of this podcast, but I think it's a, a fun topic to hit on. But for me, because I'm definitely not a plant person, I'm a, a soils person. I've always been fascinated by the physics of soil and what happens in the soil. So when I started as an undergrad, I got to study soil mechanics, really, and how so the shrink swell properties of soil. And that was a lot of fun. But then I got to transition that into my master's program where we were looking at the impact of land use and land management practices on soil hydraulic properties in particular. So I got to spend two years going out and just spending all day out in the field, essentially just running water into the soil and measuring how fast it went in. And as boring as that may sound to some people, it was a lot of fun. They were long days, but they were fun. And a big part of that was developing a system to make those measurements. So we got to try to develop an automated system for measuring hydraulic conductivity. And so we had a pretty crude system, but it worked really well. And it allowed me to make over 300 measurements of hydraulic conductivity across several fields, which takes a long time. Uh, and on some days we'd go through 1500 gallons of water in a day measuring infiltration. It was absurd. <laughs> It's also inspiration for a later instrument to better measure infiltration, isn't it? It is. It is. It's, it's really what led to a lot of the work on the Saturo. And what was really cool about that project, if you look at the work that's happening now in terms of soil health, what we know is that hydraulic conductivity is a tier one indicator of, of soil health properties. And the work I did at the time was a good indicator of that, looking at native prairie versus a conventional tillage field versus a field that's in um, improved pasture and the impact that these practices has on the soil properties, both from looking at the hydraulic conductivity is one, but also looking at its stability and its and the amount of organic matter that's stored in the soil. And you look at the work that's happening now in the soil health side of things, that all ties to it. And so really seeing how that's evolved has been really fun for me. And also now how we can contribute to that with some of the tools that we make um, and some of the tools I've been able to help develop like the Citro. See, seeing a tool like that contribute to really important science is just, I don't know, it makes my day. I, I, it's, it's why I do what I do. I have a question, Leo. Yeah. This reminded me of an internship I did um, with a soil scientist. And one of the measurements we took was the ring. And then I think we put kind of like saran wrap and then we'd put water. And then you'd pull the saran wrap out and start, start the timer. And we do like five per plot or something. That yeah. seems like a very crude way to take that kind of measurement. How does doing it like that differ to kind of how you were doing it? That's a really good question. It is a, a crude way of doing it, but it works. There's a, um, that's essentially just a quick falling head test. I, I think how that differs is just really the precision and the antecedent conditions of the soil have a big impact on actually how fast the water is initially going to flow. And so if you're not at steady state, you can severely underestimate or overestimate those properties. And so what we've tried to do is simplify that and remove any of that potential error, especially because a test like that can be really prone to human error. That's why when I did my grad project, we needed an automated device because we wanted to remove as much human error. So 
after all of that, what made you decide to come to Meter, and why has that been the best choice of your life? <laughs> um, why why do you like doing what you do now? No, that's that's great. I love instrumentation, and that was one of my favorite parts of my grad project was getting to develop new instrumentation. And I thought that would be fun to do down the road. Uh, but really, what pulled me in was when Doug and Colin came to AM to give a presentation and they talked about the Mars project, which you'll hear about in our next podcast. Seeing those guys work on something that went to Mars to measure soil properties on Mars was absolutely fascinating to me. And I was like, that's where I want to be. Those guys are doing cool stuff on Mars. <laughs> what about you, Chambers? Well, when you quit your PhD at the height of a recession, you really have to take some immediate action. No, all seriousness, though, uh, I had taken environmental biophysics with um, Colin and Doug. It it was one of the most fabulous courses I've ever taken. The other fabulous courses I've ever taken, Plants Anatomy by Vince Franceschi. But anyway, I was really impressed with a group of people and... Uh, at first I wasn't sure if I could do customer service. What do I know about customer service? You know, at the time I was a scientist and what you want me to, you want me to talk to people all day long? How's that going to work out? But all the training and the education, the, the projects that I did have and my teaching experience, uh, when I was, you know, through my master's degree and, uh, through my time as a PhD candidate were, that was all really valuable. And I realized that I'm just helping other people make their projects succeed. So yeah, I wasn't sure how it was going to work out at first, but a lot of, a, a lot of good things just kind of fell into place. And Holly, you're the newest one of the bunch here. What drew you to meter and, and what do you like about what you do now? Yeah, so my first introduction to Meter was as Decagon. That internship I mentioned earlier, we actually used Decagon soil moisture sensors. So that name was kind of always in my head, going to school in Pullman too. You know, they're pretty involved in the community. And then um, I went to Texas A&M and actually Leo's previous advisor he just mentioned was on my committee. So she introduced us. Um, at the Tri-Societies meeting in San Antonio. I think I had sent my resume over. I was kind of interested in working working for y'all. And then I got a call right after I had graduated. I didn't know where I was going to go or what I was going to do. My advisor was keeping me on just to kind of finish up my second project and get that second manuscript finalized. And I got... Um, an email from a recruiter who said, Hey, we have your application. We think you'd be good for this sales role. And kind of the same reaction that Chambers had where I was like, sales, I don't know how to sell things. I, I know how to do science, but I, I think it's been actually a pretty good fit because in this role, I talk a lot of science to scientists. Right. And so I get to interact with a lot of different scientists and hear about a lot of different work that gets to happen with these with these sensors. And I, what I really enjoy is feeling like my, my knowledge is valuable. And I think I've kind of filled this niche a little bit where I've had to learn a lot of soil science in this role um, that I didn't necessarily have going in. And I think I can relate to a lot of our plant science customers in that way, where I can kind of say, Hey, 
I know you're not a soil scientist. I know the soil science is kind of secondary to what you're doing. Here are the key things that you should really pay attention to for your study. And here's what I recommend that you do. So what is the weirdest thing about your job or rather what makes you laugh in the work that you do? You know, the fun thing about supporting scientists you know, we kind of get to live vicariously through other people's science because, you know, we're, we're passionate about that part of it. It's an important part of our lives, you know, and we've gone a different direction. And I mean, that's a fun part talking about, you know, what people are doing. And sometimes we're they're they're brainstorming and like, hey, can the instrument do this or can it do that? And, you know, sometimes you're like, no, no, that's not going to work. Don't do that. And here's why. And sometimes really cool things happen. You're talking with growers who want to use it to grow better crops. And and then uh, a week later, it could be you, you're on the phone. It's somebody from JPL, you know, the Jet Propulsion Lab. And so it's also weird and makes me laugh on the range of people that we talk to who, in the end, have the same goal of trying to learn more about what's happening in the environment of, you know, growing plants and understanding what's happening in the soil. Uh, I don't know if it's weird, but it's challenging, the, especially in product development and on, on that side, the highs and lows of product development. When you think you're so close to having something ready and then you're, you, you hit the plane of productivity and then all of a sudden you're in the valley of despair. But one of the great things about working here and working with Chambers, and this is one of the things that makes him really good at his job, is if you need to test something and see if it can be broken, you give it to Chambers. Oh, I will. I have. <laughs> I have made every mistake with our gear that our customers have. Every single one. And once they haven't yet made, probably. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I remember when we were testing out the capacitance clips that we use now to validate our Taros sensors, and I was so excited about it. And I was like, Chambers, check this out. This is awesome. And I gave it to him. First thing he does is he slides it on the sensor wrong and breaks it. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. Broke yep. the prototype before we even figured out if it worked. Yeah. But that I think that makes me laugh too. And it's, it's what, uh, I don't know. I think it's one of the things that makes, just makes it fun working with these guys. <laughs> we have a great group here, you know, I mean, all kidding aside, there's a lot of great minds here right now. And, uh, you know, just a just a fun team attitude. Do you want to add anything else, uh, Holly, about the favorite part of your job? Something I've really enjoyed is Leo's given me a lot of opportunity to help with some of the marketing aspect, and I've really enjoyed that. So I feel weirdly powerful when I get to log into the Meter Environment Twitter account and like things and retweet <laughs> things and make tweets. It's the power of social media. That's right. Yeah, and I think making sure good science is happening and empowering scientists and helping scientists troubleshoot their own research and making sure that they're getting the best data possible. I think that's always really exciting. Oh yeah. And like Holly, you probably get this one once in a while too. And when you're having a, a chat about before they purchase the equipment and it's like, we have exactly what you need to do this research. That's always really fun too. That's the best. Yes. Yeah. How has being a scientist kind of changed your view on the world? I think just the ability to stay curious and to question things, but to question things in a way that you're open to hearing that answer, right? So if you're presented with new information about something, to be open and say, oh, I have new information now, 
I can change my opinion or think about something differently. I, I feel like I've, it's taught me to be, I don't like to use, to use the word skeptical. I, I feel like it, it's more so taught me to try to better understand the process and be more critical. And at the same time, you know, when new data is presented, let's look at it and see what does that really mean? Uh, yeah, but it's also taught me to be open, I think, or just have a more open mind to things. Data, uh, just uh, interpreting data, how to look at data, how to, how to, especially if someone's telling you a story or a, present a conclusion, it, it's like, okay, are they making the right assumptions about their data? Are they presenting some bias that isn't supported by the data? That's really where science and, and statistics kind of allowed me to grow quite a bit is, is just learning how to, how to compile and look at data and, and ask the right questions about the data. To add to that, as a scientist, I've had to learn, you know, sometimes the data is going to tell you what you don't want to hear. You know, sometimes you go into a project with a hypothesis and when your hypothesis gets disproven or you're not seeing what you really wanted to see out of it, you got to accept it don't force the data to tell you something that it's not. And I, I think when I want something to be successful or I have an idea that I'm so, this is, this is why I believe it's this way. And when it's, when you're wrong, learning to accept that, I think it's been really important. Science teaches you how to be, have perseverance in that way, right? Because things go wrong more often than they go right. A lot of the times in research. Was there anything in your experience in your experiences as children or growing up that helped really pique your interest in science? Or do you have any recommendations for parents or science teachers? I'm not, I'm not asking you to give parent advice. <laughs> I'd be the worst at that. Um, <laughs> I think exposure is one of the best things you could do. And especially about for environmental science or a natural science, because it's a long story about why I chose to do a forestry forestry degree in an Illinois school, but you know it could be shortened by I you know I grew up in a place where, you know I spent a lot of time at a Christmas tree farm. I worked at one for a while, and it was, you know, next to the Illinois River, and it really got me outside all day. And the person who owned it opened some possibilities for me, and. Many years later, I just had something to build on after that. So I think ex I think exposure um, and new experiences that get people to think about uh, the environment that they're in. I think just even from a young age, I was always very curious. My mom would say that I would ask, how come, to everything. And I think that that was encouraged. And, you know, I would get answers to things and I would keep asking questions and I would keep getting answers. And so I think even throughout high school and undergrad, just always asking those questions, but having mentors who were willing to answer my questions and to foster that curiosity and to let me chase down those answers on my own, I think kind of groomed me to be a really good scientist. You know, I, I think I took something away from my mom. When I was a kid, I was always fascinated by how things worked. And so that meant I took a lot of things apart and, uh, didn't always put them back together properly, but you know, my mom never got mad. She always just, it's, it's a natural process. Kids are curious. 
And when you try to stop that, you're, you're going to stifle that. And sometimes it can be really frustrating when those things happen or when your kid's taking apart your radio or whatever. But understanding the process, they're trying to learn and instilling that. And then if you're really worried about it, find activities. I love taking our son to the different science centers around and the activity centers because they're they're just it's a great way for them to learn about processes and uh and explore that curiosity in a way that might not be so damaging to your personal property (laughs) (laughs) what do you guys think is the role of science in policy making but i think maybe even at a more general level because um there's there are a lot of ways where where science affects people's lives I know Holly, you've had some experience in uh, in working in in DC with uh, policy uh, making. Do you have some some insight into that? Yeah, so I've done a little bit of lobbying for ag research funding. Um, I've gone two years now to lobby for funding for AFRI, which is the Agricultural and Food Research Initiative under the USDA, and I, I think. That's always an interesting case study to see who's sort of a good science communicator and who's not, because policymakers care about your science in a very different way than other scientists care about your science. So to be able to really put yourself in the shoes of the policymaker and say, okay, what are their values? What do they find important? What's going to be a key takeaway for them about what I do that's going to matter and make them feel like, wow, this is really valuable is a learned skill. And so it it's a very different type of communication of science communication, I will say. So it's not here's the data. Here's what we looked at. Here's, you know, the methodology we did. It's, hey, if we can figure this out, these are the impacts that we're going to have on society or, you know, this this funding brings in this many dollars to the universities in your state, right? It brings in this many jobs to your state. It brings in this much return to the economy in your state. So they're very numbers-based and impact-based. On a broader perspective, they're less likely to be entranced by kind of the details of your science. I think Holly's answer is, is really good just from the, the policies perspective and, and how you communicate it and how to get other people interested in it because science becomes a a really big problem when we make try to make people's lives too hard and i think it's important that we find a way to have a balance there but also explaining why it's important from a long-term perspective like one of the things that's really important to me i see is 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 i'm gonna hit on soil health again it's something that i see as being a long-term challenge and there are many things coming out now like regenerative agriculture and 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 those things that are going to be challenging to get people to see why it's important. And our job as scientists is going to be really to try to show them not only the data of, of why, but try to, try to get them to think about the long-term impact it's going to have on them and their family and the ability to keep producing food. You know, from my perspective, it's important because it's going to preserve our soil. It's going to stop polluting the environment with sediments being run off into our water bodies and those types of things. But it's challenging. I think we always are, are going to have a challenge with this. So how do scientists better communicate their research, their results, uh, the importance of the scientific method to the layperson? Have you guys seen any real successes or, or ways that uh, individual scientists or groups of scientists have communicated well with 
the general public or with the layperson? It's something I'm really passionate about. I think that when you can connect with people through what they value, first and foremost, that that's going to open them up a little bit more to hear what you have to say. And I think the more you can kind of show where you align with people's values and kind of communicate with them more on an emotional and sensitive way rather than sort of a fact-based way, because that's not always the compelling route to go. There's not like a exact formula for Mm -hmm. the right way to communicate with someone. I think it's very situation specific. Um, But just for example, with the GMO debate, right? I think all the time about how great GMOs were for farmers specifically. So Roundup Ready, uh, BT, um, but that's not compelling to people because they don't understand the challenges that farmers have. And so they look at that and they say, okay, what, what problem does that solve for me? I feel like I'm taking on risk with no reward. But if you change the narrative and you say, well, we, we use GMOs to make insulin for people so that there's no risk of, of allergies and we don't have to harvest insulin from animals. We use GMOs to make the flavoring in plant-based meats. That's something that resonates with a lot of people. I think you kind of have to spin the narrative and not in a way that's disingenuous, but in a way that's like, hey, this solves your issues too. It's not high risk, no reward. It's low risk, high reward for all of us. And I also think that the way we take in information now has changed quite a bit just with technology and trying to use the types of tools that we have now to present that information in a more digestible fashion is is really important to get it down to a, a level that somebody can understand. Um, but I definitely think you know, what Holly said, and you really need to tie it to something that they're going to resonate with. If not, you're just going to lose them. Well spoken guys. <laughs> it is tough though. And, and I, I, I do like the word translate uh, because a lot of times it, it is as if uh, scientists are speaking a different language, um, even between uh, fields even within fields, you're using all sorts of jargon where you can really be talking past people. And you, you have to find that way to translate what you know and what you've been working on uh, into that language. And Holly, I like what, what you said about, about trying to find people's uh, values and, and really trying to find those commonalities that you can communicate across. That's my two cents, and I will move on. Um, if you could choose one question about the physical world to know the answer to, what would that be? Uh, What is the biggest knowledge gap that we have right now in our understanding of the physical world? What's the most promising research on the physical environment being done right now? Okay, so these are broad questions. You can talk about your your specific interests, or you can talk about science in general. Does anybody want to take a shot at at any of those? I think I'm just going to talk about soil health again because it's a topic that I actually really enjoy. But I see the work that's being done there to connect. with growers and policymakers, why soil health is important and the things that are coming out of that now and what we're learning about how we can better manage our soils and our land to both be productive, but at the same time, protect our soils for generations down the road. And also from a climate change impact, this is huge. I mean, there are many estimations on uh, the impact that 
regenerative agriculture can have on carbon sequestration. And so I, I think soil health practices and regenerative agriculture have the potential to be a big piece of the solution to not just climate change, but also just helping preserve our soils and, and our ability to produce food down the road. I want to know what human caring capacity of earth can be. I mean, that's a super hard one to, to get at because of technical, technological advances and, you know, things like GMOs that make us able to grow more food on a smaller area. But, you know, that's uh, at, at some point there's a theoretical carrying capacity. And where is that? What, uh, it, it's not, it's not ever, ever growing. I think too, the exciting thing about that kind of work is it's increasingly interdisciplinary, right? So that's going to require plant scientists, soil scientists, data scientists. Um, I think more than ever, scientists from different fields are working together. And I think that's a really exciting place to be. Okay, our time's up for today. And just a reminder, if you have any questions, feel free to contact us at metergroup.com. You can also reach us via Twitter through our handle at meter underscore ENV. Our environmental research experts will be in touch with you to answer any questions, or we can put you in contact with today's guest speakers. You can view a full copy of the script in the podcast description. That's it for today. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time on We Measure the World.